What I would like to talk about this evening in a few different ways is the body. Now as we contemplate over these days the, the movements and the changes in our own hearts and minds, it's probably started to get clearer for us that our sense of who we are or our sense of self in any moment of our life seems to rest in and rely upon whatever it is that we grasp hold of or cling to in that moment. So we define and we describe ourselves at different times by sometimes by our body, sometimes by our thoughts, our perceptions, our feelings, our states of mind. Now many of these descriptions about ourselves that we see changing many times in a single day, some of those descriptions, the definitions are very fleeting, very ephemeral, they're like clouds that appear in the sky and they come, they form, they last for a time and then they're forgotten. Or sometimes the definitions that seem so pressing and compelling in one moment are in another moment replaced by yet another definition of ourselves which feels equally or more pressing and compelling. Our sense of me who is angry, you know, I'm an angry person, is quite forgotten, isn't it, in the presence of an emerging happiness. The sense of me as a kind of failure or impossible person, person is, is quite erased by the presence of a moment of calmness or peace that is then taken hold of, and suddenly I'm really a very peaceful person. In the presence of agitation, the person, you know, the I who was really calm feels like only a distant memory. In the presence of calmness, the I who I was sure I was going to be an agitated person forever, the agitated person is also forgotten very quickly in the presence of a new definition. Perhaps one of the most central and the most constant places of interest in our life is, of course, our sense of self, me. You know, we're very interested in ourselves. One of the words that we use most often in our vocabulary is I, me, mine. And one of the most consistent resting places for this sense of I, this sense of self, is in our body. We're born in our bodies, we spend our lives in our bodies, we will die in our bodies. And we see that our bodies, at times in our life, are great allies. And we can equally, at times, feel very betrayed by our bodies. Our bodies can delight us and they can also at times really torment us. There are moments when we suffer in our bodies, and it's also true that some of the moments of deepest 
connection, deepest intimacy, are also happening in the world of our body. Being in a body, living in a body, in a real way, links us all with each other. And in a way, connects us with all bodies. Connects us to the natural world, being in a body, and to every single thing that is born. Walt Whitman once said that everything we do, everything we have ever done, and everything we will do, we will do in our body. I think it's clear too in our meditation that if we're to awaken to find liberation, it will also be discovered while we're in this body. And the compassion, the loving kindness, the the sensitivity, the care that we can discover on our journey, those qualities are also going to be expressed and given life to our body. You know, it really perhaps is no surprise that the first foundation of mindfulness is the contemplation of our body. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha encourages us to contemplate the body as a body, to contemplate the body of the breath, to contemplate our bodies internally and externally, to contemplate our bodies in all their postures and movements of our bodies through the day. There's the encouragement to contemplate the smallest details of our body, the inner world of organs and blood and bones. And we're also encouraged, too, to contemplate the aging and the death of our bodies and the deaths all around us, knowing that being in a body, too, means that this body has only one destination, which is to die. This is an area where we often have a lot of aversion. We often have a lot of resistance. We don't like to hear this. Um, there was a time when I was practicing in Thailand in a monastery, and when I arrived there, I was shown to my kuti, my, my little hut, and you know, this nun opened the door, and, and I went in, and like most meditation huts, you know, it had the bare essentials, you know, it had the straw mat on the floor. Uh, that was it, yeah. Except it, <laughs> there was also a skull. A skull, a human skull. Now, I felt probably pretty much like you would feel if you opened your door here, shown in your room, <laughs> and you found a skull just sitting there. You know, my first feeling was, you know, like this is almost obscene, this is perverse, this is terrible, you know, what am I going to do with this, you know. Uh, you know, I really didn't want it there. But, you know, it, it's like an offering, you know, like, what do you do? Uh, and, you know, like, in these monasteries, it's not like there's a lot of places you can go hide something. You know, so it was kind of, I had to accept, you know, the skull was with me. And I, I really didn't like it. And I was sitting in my kuti, you know, and I, and I would sit, you know, kind of with my back, you know, the skull, the skull in the corner, and I would sit with my back to the skull and kind of try and pretend it wasn't there. But the more I pretended, actually, it wasn't there, the more it seemed to loom in its presence, you know, and I would sort of open my eyes and look out the corner of my eyes and 
you know, skull was still there. And I, anyway, as you can imagine, this pretty with its straw mat and its skull, that there wasn't really very much to do there. And there wasn't much to be interested in. So after a while, I found myself getting really quite interested in this skull. And, I mean, I don't know if you've ever... Uh, maybe this sounds weird, but uh, I don't even had the chance to really ever hold a skull. I think it's the most remarkable thing. Uh, you know, a skull underneath this is really the most remarkable thing. I mean, it's texture, it's color, and I could wrap the dive on about skulls, but I won't. But I found over the days that gradually, gradually, my relationship to the skull really began to change. There was something about letting go of the aversion, about letting go of the resistance, and Eventually, you know, I put the skull in front of me when I sat, and the skull and I would sit together. And it, it, I had this sense, you know, you really had this sense, like, that's also me. You know, it's kind of changing from the aversion, and seeing this is also me. And there's, there's some, you know, well, that will be me at some point. Uh, I mean, not right now, but at some point, maybe somebody will sit with my skull. And it was kind of, it was sort of this very kind of, there was somehow about, something about opening to life which included death. And there was something about kind of letting go of that aversion, which I found really quite remarkable. In the Siddhartana Sutta, we're encouraged to contemplate the body as a body and to abide freely, not clinging to anything in this world. And the Buddha went, did go on to say that everything that needs to be understood can be understood within the length of this body. The lessons of impermanence are change. We learn in our body. The lessons of suffering, of what causes suffering and what can end suffering, we also learn in our bodies. In our bodies we learn a great deal about emptiness. Also learned in the world of our bodies are the lessons of care, of compassion, of acceptance. And I feel like within our bodies we learn this apparently paradoxical lesson that is really a life lesson, which is about how to live with a real depth of care and compassion and yet not hold on to anything at all. Within our bodies, we also learn the lessons of freedom. One of the first great leaps we really make in mindfulness practice is to bring our attention and to bring our mind into our bodies. Exploring the life of this body and all of the stories and fears and resistances and images that attach themselves to our bodies. Here we see really our body is truly a friend, it's really an ally in developing understanding. Some of the anxiety, the patterns of disconnection, the confusion, the struggles and judgments that can arise in relationship in our bo- to our bodies, they're the same anxieties and struggles and fears that arise in countless other areas of our life. The patterns of abandonment 
that sometimes manifest in relationship to our bodies are the same patterns, patterns of abandonment that we find elsewhere. We have seen, or we do see as we contemplate our bodies in meditation practice, how much our bodies are a mirror for our mind and our world. And we learn to find calmness and understanding in our bodies and to embody those qualities then in all the areas of our life. We learn to let go in our bodies, even as we bring a genuine depth of sensitivity to them. My sense is that in contemplating our bodies, we, we are learning to weave together in, in many ways relative and absolute truth, <coughs> caring for the world of form, embracing our bodies with a real bottomless integrity and compassion, embodying a great sensitivity and loving kindness, and yet not mistaking our bodies for being the truth of who we are. And not mistaking any, the appearance of anyone or anything for being the truth of who they are. You've probably noticed here on the retreat how easy it is and sometimes how often it is that we feel somewhat disembodied. Or that our bodies are kind of a backdrop for the busyness of our minds. And it seems that there's both, you know, spiritually and conventionally and socially, it's almost as if there's like these two positions we can inhabit in relationship to our bodies. One position is to treat our bodies neglectfully. To treat our bodies as a kind of nuisance, even as an enemy, or, or something really to ignore as much as possible. Sometimes people treat their bodies just as a source of, you know, distraction or discomfort. And there's really different degrees within this position of neglect or abandonment. There's this, where we might treat the body with just a minimum, absolute minimum of care. I came across the same as that many people treat their bodies as if they, they're something they rented from Hertz cars, something they used to get around in, but nothing they genuinely care about understanding. I think that's not an unusual position. And yet there's also the extremes in the positions of neglect or resistance of the body those who have aversion for their bodies, hatred. Um, we often find our inner equilibrium so affected by what is happening in our bodies. Our inner equilibrium, our sense of well-being, our, our sense of self. How often there can be this kind of constant obsession with health, with appearance, with attractiveness, with non-attractiveness. And then we see how our bodies seem to become a kind of minefield of anxiety and preoccupation and busyness. 
We can run between the position of neglect and the position of obsession. Both of them reflect the quality of identification with our body, which actually undermines well-being. I think these positions of neglect and kind of over-obsession, they, they're reflected in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it feels to me like there's almost a universality around the confusion about the body. I came across a few statements, and actually some of the more extreme ones I've censored out. I thought they were too much. They kind of reflect these extremes. There's a statement I came across that says, you know, if anything is sacred, the human body is sacred. Some people smile when they hear that. They feel, oh yeah, absolutely right. Another line I came across said, our body is a thing of shreds and patches, borrowed unequally from good and bad ancestors, and a misfit from the start. I think some people find themselves agreeing with that. There's a line that says, I visited in my wandering shrines and other places of pilgrimage, but I've not seen another shrine like my own body. From another teacher, look at your body, ill, rotten. Focus your mind on all of this. Only a fool would love it. It's, I mean, it's hard to find in a lot of these things we hear really a sense of clarity or equanimity. We see the, the kind of confusion, confusion that can permeate so many different levels. Our sense, our sense of self is often governed by our relationship to our bodies. We can feel ashamed of them. We can feel exhilarated about our bodies. I know before I went to Asia as a teenager, I, I lived probably like most teenage girls in the West with an ongoing preoccupation with my body, with clothing, with appearance. Even when I was a hippie, I really wanted to be a well-dressed hippie. <laughs> and when could, I could sense the way in which this identification with self as body meant that body became a means to love or affirmation or praise or admiration. And so it consumed immense amount of time and energy to have an attractive body sometimes equated with having an attractive self. You can imagine my shock, actually, in Asia, especially going to places where, you know, they seem to kind of, like, make artwork of skeletons, you know. You know, there would be skeletons all over the place in some monasteries, and skeletons sitting on the porches when you went up to meditation halls, you know, and like, I got this idea they thought differently about the body than I was used to thinking about it. And it was really quite this eye-opener, you know, like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? How do you make that movement from identification and kind of self as body to seeing body in a totally different way, in a, in a bigger way, as part of nature, as nothing that is particularly mine? or descriptive of me. 
the Buddha in his own journey, when he was very much Siddhartha, initially treated his body as an obstruction, as something to transcend. He very much spent a lot of effort, a lot of energy, trying to subdue, trying to overcome his body. In his ascetic years, he punished his body uh, severely, starving himself until, as the stories say, you know, he would touch his stomach and his fingers would touch his backbone. Engaging, really, in what we might look upon as being kind of quite disembodied activity, <coughs> and, and in a way misperceiving these deluded activities as renunciation. And in a way, Buddha, the Buddha continued on a really rather destructive path until there was in his journey this turning point of your change in attitude whereas he sat but on the side of a river almost so weak and starved that he was no longer able to sit outside. And someone offered him a bowl of rice gruel. And in taking that kind of nourishment, a change of heart and a change of transformation and perhaps an appreciation, a sense of needing to care for his body. And it was also a change of heart and body and a kind of deeper connection with the earth, with being rooted in that. I think throughout our life we can often get a sense of how much of our sense of self-worth is really identified with our bodies. I mean, I don't know if you ever had the experience of getting a glimpse of yourself in a mirror or store window or something and feeling really taken aback. You can't quite believe that's you. Mm-hmm. You know, last time I remember I was in France and, you know, because I didn't sort of have my work clothes on, you know, I had my ski clothes on, I was in one of these stores where there were all these mirrors and I walked into myself because I just did not totally recognize myself. I had no idea. And I just walked right into the mirror. I could not believe that was me. Have you ever seen this curious thing where, they, where, where so many people, it's almost universal, universal, have a resistance to seeing themselves, photos of themselves? You know, you look at photos of yourself and that's really, really such an awful photo. You know, that, that, you know it, just, it just doesn't look like me, we say. You know, that just says, I don't look like that. There's kind of, there's almost this shock of seeing ourselves Maybe as somebody else might see us. When we look in the mirror in the morning, how often, or, or however many times you might look in the mirror in the day, how often is it a neutral experience? You know, where it's just simply a, a kind of, you know, a little check for spinach in the teeth, you know, or, or anything that needs fixing in it. How often it's really, really a neutral experience. You know, how's the hair today? The lines, you know, is that, you know, you know, nothing good. It's all. We have this extraordinary relationship that's that's often reflected in that. Sometimes I think it's a useful mindfulness exercise to just look at yourself in the mirror and see how much it's a neutral experience and how much you see just what's there, and how much you see a sense of self, a sense of me, a sense of what and who I am. 
I once saw this cartoon in Tricycle, I think it was. <laughs> this is a little bit heretical, but I mean, the Buddha, the Buddha is standing there, he's got one of these cartoon bubbles coming out of his mouth, and he's talking to a monk, and he's saying, I hate my size. <laughs> you know, it is almost like there's this kind of genetic dissatisfaction with the body. You know, you could imagine sitting under your own body tree only a different size. You know, or if only I had a, you know, a head of hair to sit under this with. You know, whatever our particular obsession is. But we see that the degree of investment that we have in self in the body, or self as the body, that is often to the degree of suffering that we have. And that can increase day by day. The thing about our bodies is that they don't go from age to youth, you've noticed. They only go from youth to age. And that often means that the level of insult we receive through our bodies also only goes one way. It doesn't decrease. You may have noticed this. It is not difficult for us to explore the possibilities of confusion in our body. I think with inside practice we are also invited to explore the possibilities of clarity. Understanding that some of the places of greatest struggle and greatest confusion in our life are also going to be the places that offer the greatest insight. The places where we feel most contracted and imprisoned may also be the places where we discover the greatest liberation and compassion. In our bodies, first we explore the body of our breath. And here we learn a lot of lessons about simplicity and about letting go. We feel the body of the breath. We learn to sense just the body of the breath. We also perhaps begin to sense that I really am not the breather. We try to be the breather sometimes. And you may have noticed that every time you try to be the breather, you get into trouble. Then whenever I try to be the breather, to, to be in control of it, to own it, that's when our breath becomes a place of anxiety, of judgment, of doing it right, of struggle, of wrong, of good and bad. All of that gets associated with the breather, the frustration, the anxiety. And sometimes we see, or often we see ourselves able to step underneath that, a letting go of the breather, and the breath just breathes itself. And we learn to be awake in the body of our breath, exploring our capacity for presence, for sensitivity, for aliveness within that body of the breath. There is also the possibility of seeing in that some of the emptiness of the breathing. Our capacity to be present, to be alert and sensitive within our breathing, within our breath body, opens the door to exploring and to understanding the whole of our experience, moment to moment. We sense, too, the body of emotion 
within our body. The body of anger, of fear, of anxiety, of sadness, of grief, of happiness, of love. We learn to sin and to explore that body of emotion within our bodies, to be intimate with it. Sometimes we, we see the way that if emotions have actually almost embedded themselves in our bodies. We can sense that sometimes in how we hold ourselves, our, our posture, the way we might try to protect or open the places of contractedness. Sometimes we see past experiences or historical experiences of pain or fear that have locked themselves into our bodies in different ways. We also see in our emotional bodies how that sense of I latches on to a particular emotion. And in latching on, when that sense of I latches on to a particular emotion, that's often when we become, find ourselves feeling somewhat imprisoned or defined by that latching. We say, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm, I'm fearful, I'm suspicious. Somehow with the latching, we set in motion really a world of agitation. With, with the latching, the defining, we set in motion the world of, of craving and aversion, we feel you have to get rid of something or fix something or have more of one thing or less of another. Now, the sorrow and the struggle is not in the emotion. The sorrow and the struggle is in the holding. And what we learn is that we can dive beneath the clinging. Sometimes we totally release it. And when we're able to let go of the clinging, somehow you notice the sense of I dissolves with letting go of the clinging. Then we're not emotionally imprisoned. In fact, we are often in those moments very emotionally awake. It is, this is sadness. This is fear. This is anger. This is grief. It's not who I am, not what I am. But that also means in the kind of letting go of the clinging in the sense of I, we also let go of the enemy. There's nothing to be afraid of. And in some way, when we let go of the clinging, it releases something. I mean, letting go of holding, letting go of clinging, it's not a kind of um, barren state. The letting go of clinging and letting go of holding is actually also a release. Somehow letting go of clinging releases our capacity to attend, to care for, to embrace, to understand our emotional body. We also see in letting go of the sense of I am and the clinging, these different bodies of emotion, they arise and pass all through the day, just like our breath does. They appear and they fade. It's, it's in the identifying and holding so tightly and defining by, that's when we get shattered by emotion. 
when we really learn to listen, to receive fully, to take the I out, somehow that's when we're really embodied. We're steady, we're balanced, we're mindful, we see what causes suffering, what ends suffering. Mindfulness is not a device to create a kind of emotional neutrality or barrenness, but it's learning to find the same freedom and release within the body of emotion as we can find anywhere. We also see the body of our mind, the body of thought in our body. Sometimes it's so obvious, it's so apparent how our body is when our mind is agitated or dull or heavy or fearful. You can immediately see almost the body of the mind in the physical body. We also see like when our minds are most lost, most, uh, uh, most turmoil, when there are storms of thinking. How often that impacts on our body too because we become in those moments the most disembodied. But by learning to come back out of the swirls, out of the turmoil, in a way we are embodied and we learn to release some of those <coughs> storms. In, on a more, the most subtle level, we can begin to sense the arising thought impact in our body. You see the thought and the sensation of the thought. can see that simultaneously. In mindfulness practice, we are, of course, learning to integrate our mind, body, present moment. Learning to sense the moments of division when our mind separates from our body as those moments of being disembodied. And we also learn to heal that fracture, to come back and to cultivate oneness. We see in our bodies how much we learn the lessons of impermanence. Reluctantly, sometimes it's true. But still, we learn the lessons of impermanence. And we learn, how, in a way, how to find a sense of grace within the world of change. Not just in the changing nature of our bodies, but in all things. How to find a sense of grace and balance. We see impermanence is mostly seen as bad news when our sense of self is really clinging to the body or demanding sameness anywhere. Some of you have I've told you this, uh, you've heard me tell this story in the past, that there was a time when I found myself going to the dentist a lot and I suddenly needed all these root canals and, and crowns and caps, you know. And I was really quite shocked, you know. I mean, I never used to go to the dentist very much. And I said to the dentist, you know, like, what's happening here? You know, how come I suddenly need all this work? And he says, your teeth think you're, he said it's a design fault, your teeth think your body should be dead. <laughs> I mean, it's like my teeth are kind of hanging on here, and they've got this idea my body should be dead, like they weren't supposed to last this long. You know, so something they need all this attention. And I thought, you keep getting these messages. I thought, ah, that's something to find a sense of equanimity around, you know. 
But isn't it true that, you know, our bodies are these kind of primary messengers of impermanence? Messengers of life, in a sense. Messengers of the, the impermanence which the change in all things. And there is something so beautiful and so grateful about learning to kind of open to that, the changes within our bodies is in some ways opening to nature. You know, just the way that we see spring turning into summer, turning into autumn, to winter, and the cycles in nature, we can sense how much a part of nature our own bodies are. It's when we begin to try to prevent ending, try to prevent passing, then we invite a sea of sorrow. And it's really wisdom that saves us from this. In our bodies, again and again, we learn the lessons of kindness in our physical, emotional, thought, body. We also learn about possibilities. Just as we can suffer in our bodies, we also see how much we can awaken. In some ways, to probe our relationship to our bodies is really to probe the meaning of imprisonment and freedom. Now, in deeper states of meditation, and some of you have already mentioned this, our sense of our body really goes through some big changes. You know, you, you can sense how your, your, your sense of body, your notion of body alters as the mind and the attention calms and deepens. Sometimes there's this experience of the disappearing body is really not that unusual in meditation. You're, you're settled, the mind is calm, the attention is deeper, and suddenly you, you feel like it's really hard to distinguish, you know, where an arm ends and where a leg begins, where a leg ends and where a cushion begins, you know, where space ends and where a body begins. You notice your body starts to lose those edges. It's not so unusual, it's not such a rare experience. And somehow you, you kind of sense that it's not a disembodiment, but what you can feel is a kind of softening of that sense of solidity in the body. And in that, often, it's really hard to find a sense of self in the body. It, 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 that kind of deepening can radically alter our sense of that whole notion of I am the body changes it very dramatically. But some people think, okay, well, you know, okay, then you've got to have a really happy, cooperative body then to deepen in meditation. But actually, in, I've spoken to so many people who have had exactly the same experience in bodies where they carry like really chronic pain and illness. How that too becomes, when the body is such a huge presence, when there's real pain or, or chronic illness, that this too can be a place where the holding and the resistance can deeply disappear. 
There's a woman, I spoke to, who's really in constant pain with rheumatoid arthritis. As she said, the only way that I know to alleviate suffering is to be intimate with it. In mindfulness practice, I think, too, we begin to sense our bodies really as a body of a Buddha, empty of holding, empty of clinging, empty of self. And this little poem I came across recently, it says, my body, you are kind to sit and wait for me while I'm away. I wander off, but you don't budge. When I return home, it is to you. As we start to let go of some of the holding, I think also we start to see the emptiness of the description, the I am. And we end the suffering, actually, that comes with the descriptions and the claims. Being awake in our body, the Buddha talks about it. Abiding, not clinging to anything, not holding anywhere. It is also the place, that kind of not clinging, that not holding anywhere, where compassion and where kindness really deepens. Just a couple of minutes, quietly together.